Hello, I'm Terrence McNally. Welcome to Free Forum, a world that just might work. And I'm going to be speaking today with Jeff Goodell, who's been focusing for over two decades on energy, environment, and climate, about his latest and very timely book, The Heat Will Kill You First, Life and Death on a Scorched Planet. To learn more, go to jeffgoodellwriter.com. That's J-E-F-F. G-O-O-D-E-L-L, writer, Jeff Goodell, writer, one word, dot com. On Freeform, we explore the lives, the work, the ideas of individuals that I suspect have pieces of the puzzle of a world that just might work. We look at politics, economics, environment, science, health, culture, all based on the fact that I believe we can do better, and I want to find out how. The show streams weekly on the Progressive Voices Network on TuneIn.com, and podcasts are available anytime, anywhere on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, most major podcast sites, and at my site, TerrenceMcNally.net, T-E-R-R-E-N-C-E-M-C-N-A-L-L-Y.net. I've been active one way or another regarding environmental issues, our relationship with the rest of nature, and later climate change since the 1970s, long before I started doing this uh, radio slash podcast in 1996. And with climate, there have been a few instances where I've gotten a new angle on things, a new understanding of what's going on. One is probably when I read The End of Nature, Bill McKibben's 1989 book. Another is probably the first time that I saw one of Al Gore's Inconvenient Truth slideshows and got the bigger picture in terms of the evolution and the extent of the problem. Another was actually McKibben's Rolling Stone article from several years ago in which he focused on mathematics and he pointed out that the numbers of what we can afford to put up, what we've already put up, and what's in the ground tell us that we have to leave our fossil fuel reserves in the ground. Michael Mann's recent book, The New Climate War, in which he wrote about how the tactics of the fossil fuel industry and their allies have had to change due to it being impossible to deny climate change any longer. And I will add today's guest, Jeff Goodell, his new book and this conversation to that list. His book, The Heat Will Kill You First, gives me a new understanding, perhaps a new alarm. He makes the point that we have to grasp that the assumption that we will do what we need to do in time okay, and that things will go back to normal is a profound misunderstanding of the moment. CO2 is not like smog, he points out. We cleaned up the air and conditions got better. That's not going to happen with CO2. CO2 is up there basically permanently. No matter how fast or how well we clean up our act, what we've already put up there has brought us to this unprecedented and unpredictable place that we now find ourselves. And we do not know what will happen even if we could stop right now. We do not know the possible cascading effects of the CO2 emissions that we've already pushed out into the atmosphere. We are in a new climate regime, according to Jeff Goodell. The physics in the atmosphere is new and different. We do not understand. We do not have mastery. But one thing that the book makes clear is that 
There is no going back. We need to grasp that we are going to be in a new climate world for as long as anyone can imagine. Preparing for this conversation, I recalled my last conversation with systems thinker Dana Meadows, co-author of The Limits to Growth back in 1972. And in that conversation, uh, shortly before her death, she said that the U.S. often does the right thing, but in the best of circumstances, it is usually about three years too late. That is the nature of the political and the social and the financial systems that one has to negotiate to get anything done. So if we're already in the danger zone, how much worse will we make it by the delay and the, and the disabling of our highly warranted responses due to the corruption of those systems? And I'm not talking about the quid pro quo bribery kind of corruption. I just mean that the systems don't work clearly to promote well-being. And you could add to those three systems our education and media systems, both of which I think have a direct bearing on our response to the human contribution to the highly dangerous climate change we are now experiencing. Jeff Goodell has covered climate change, as I said, for more than two decades at Rolling Stone. He's a senior fellow at the Adrian Arsht Rockefeller Foundation Resilience Center, a 2020 Guggenheim Fellow, and the author of seven books, including The Water Will Come, Rising Seas, Sinking Cities, and The Remaking of the Civilized World, which was a New York Times critic's top book of 2017. His latest book, the one we're talking about today, is The Heat Will Kill You First, Life and Death on a Scorched Planet. Welcome, Jeff Goodell, to Free Forum, a world that just might work. Well, thank you for having me, and thank you for that uh, really excellent introduction. Okay, and let me tell listeners we're recording this conversation Friday, August 25th. Thank you for that, Jeff. I, I start every conversation pretty much with this question, which is that I want people, listeners, to get a feel for the people behind the work and the ideas we talk about. We're, we're not having a conversation with a book. We're having a conversation with you. And can you tell us a bit about how you see your path to the life you lead and the work you do today? And feel free to go back to childhood inspirations, mentors, turning points, moments of decision, that sort of thing. Wow, that's a, that's a long and circuitous uh, path. As it is for most, I must <laughs> yeah. assure you. Well, it's interesting. Most people think, you know, because I write about climate change and have been writing about it for so long that I grew up in some kind of a really progressive family that was spending a lot of time out, you know, uh, hugging trees and... Um, <laughs> you know, tending to injured salamanders and things. Um, but that wasn't the case. Um, I grew up in California in the middle of Silicon Valley. Um, I worked at Apple Computer in the early days uh, when Steve Jobs was still running around barefoot and yelling Bob Dylan lyrics at everybody. Uh, um, what, what did you do there? I'm just curious. I was a very low-level um, uh, tech writer. I helped... Um, help write the manual for the um, very ill-fated Apple III, which was the computer that came out right before the, the Mac. Um, so I was only there, you know, six yeah. or eight months. And yeah. it, to me, it felt like um, 
nowheresville. Like nothing interesting was happening at this little company called Apple. Funny. It was really bo- really boring. I needed to get out of there. So I brilliant <laughs> I brilliantly quit and went to Lake Tahoe and dealt blackjack for a couple of years and uh, was a ski bum. Um, Good for but, you. <laughs> yeah. But but the the sort of larger point about you know how I grew up and stuff was that you know my father was a big hunter and fisherman. Um, I spent a lot of time hunting, um, a lot of time fishing. Um, you know, the, my father was my family were conservatives in California. You know, I, I did not grow up in any kind of a kind of liberal cocoon in, in any way, um, and didn't even really think about environment or climate or or anything like that um, until I was really in my thirties. I'd already been working as a journalist in New York City, covering crime and politics and just the usual cop beat stuff in in New York City. Um, And then in in 2001, just after George W. was elected, the New York Times called me up and said, you know, there's this thing called the Bush-Cheney Energy Plan that they just released that looks like there's going to be a big comeback to coal. Why don't you go to West Virginia and write about the comeback of the coal industry? And I had a little, a little like cartoon bubble above my head uh, kind of popped up and I thought, coal, what are you talking about? There's no coal in America. You know, I'd never, I'd never seen coal, never thought about coal, knew nothing about coal. I thought it was something that happened in Charles Dickens novels. Um, but I thought, I said, as one would, when the New York Times calls and asks you to do a big story, um, yeah, sure, I'll go do it. And I did, and I went to West Virginia and um, spent about a month there and saw the mountains kind of being blown up by um, the coal miners and talked with a lot of coal miners who were in deep mines and, and began to look at the consequences of mining, of burning coal. And um, it really opened my eyes to sort of what goes on behind the light switch and the consequences of where we get our energy. I, I spent a month there, wrote a big story. It was a cover for the New York Times Magazine eventually then immediately turned into uh well immediately in the sense of two years uh, into a a book um called big coal and that was the turning point for me from then on i've I've basically never written about anything but climate it became um something and energy It, it became a story that i became completely fascinated by um because it was so um big and so consequential and um you know, it, it it really captured my interest in all kinds of ways, both because of the scale of the story and the consequences, but also I think it connected with my interest in sort of my Silicon Valley roots with the possibilities of engineering, of building a better world, of, um, you know, what technology can and can't do to improve our world. Um, all those kinds of things played into it for me. So that was sort of, you know, my path. Mm, yeah, as as frustrating or uh, alarming as your beat may be, um, I can imagine that it feels a bit like a calling. Yeah, I mean, it does, you know. I mean, first of all, nobody becomes a journalist unless you feel like, you know, you you have some sense of wanting to inform the world and contribute. I think most journalists feel that their words matter. Um, You know, it's a really hard job and nobody would want to do it if they didn't feel like there was some purpose for, for their work. And I, and I feel that, you know, 
very strongly in, in my work. I mean, there's a lot of subjects and beats that would be much easier and more glamorous and, um, you know, less of a, of a strain on my family and on all those kinds of things. But I, I really feel like it is the most important story of our time. And I feel incredibly privileged um, to tell it and to be a part of it for as long as I have been. And, um, you know, it, it's a very satisfying feeling, feeling like your work matters. Um, not that I'm revolutionizing the world or anything, right. but, I, but I'm adding incrementally, I think, to people's understanding of what's happening right now in our world. And, you know, as a journalist, that's, what you, that's the most you can ask for. Were we in the middle of Phoenix's whatever it was, 23 straight days, over 120, I think, something like that, when your book came out. Uh, I was just uh, uh, curious about the, as I said, this is, uh, 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 you know, for bad reasons, this is a very timely book. Yeah, and for me, the lesson is the virtues of procrastination, because I was a year late. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and if I would have gotten it done on time, um, you know, Obviously, there were, it was still warm last summer and all that, but it wasn't um, these kinds of extreme heat waves that we're having right now. It's a weird feeling, you know, because um, uh, first of all, it feels a little bit like I'm living in my own Stephen King novel, you know, that I somehow kind of, you know, wrote about this stuff and, th and then it happened. Right, right. Um, in other words, you predicted horror and then horror emerges. Yes, exactly. But I also feel um, really uh, lucky um, because it has focused people's attention on the book. And, you know, you and I might not be having this conversation right now if it hadn't been such a brutal summer. And I think that it has opened the door to a lot of conversations and to a lot of people trying to come to grips with understanding, you know, what's going on. Um, like one, one interviewer I was talking with the other day um, said that her daughter came up to her and said, Mommy, the sky is broken. And... And I think a lot of people are kind of feeling that right now. And so to the degree that they can turn to my book and have some bit of understanding about what that means and what the implications of that are is, you know, to me, fortuitous. Yeah, yeah. How did this particular book happen besides the procrastination that had to happen more slowly? How did it happen? How did you decide, you know, the you've, you've been, you know, consistently writing the, the conditions consistently change, the response changes sort of not as quickly, but how did this particular book and its central message happen? Yeah, it's an interesting question because, you know, when you, like me writing about climate change and energy, and it's a huge beat, right? There's lots of different ways that you can, uh, there's just, you know, a, an endless variety of important angles on this and important ways to think about this. And so it is hard to, um, you know, pull the trigger on a book and think, okay, I'm going to spend the next three or four years of my life working on this particular aspect. But a lot of it is very intuitive. And um, for me, uh, it, there was a real kind of moment when I made this decision. And that moment was in Phoenix, Arizona, um, four years ago, when I happened to be there for a meeting and I was staying downtown and I had to walk 15 blocks um, mm. to, to a meeting and it was 115 degrees and it was probably because of the 
amplification of heat in downtown with all the asphalt and concrete and everything it was probably 135 or something, you know, literally on the street where I was walking. Right. So let, by, me, let me just stop you for a second so that, you know, because who knows if we'll circle back to that point again. Tell people a little more about what you just said, and then we'll get back to, you, you know what I'm saying, the moment. Mm-hmm. You mean about why cities are hot? Why yes, yes. Why than, yeah. 115 is suddenly 130? Because so they, you know, the when you hear the temperature in in Phoenix today or like in Austin today, it's a I'm looking at my thermometer now. It's 108 degrees. Um, you know, that's the air temperature, right? Given taken at a certain point in the city at a certain elevation above above the surface, um, and depending on where that you know where that station is it may or may not reflect you know the the temperatures um in the in the central part of the city but it certainly doesn't reflect the the ground level temperatures i mean cities are there's a well-known thing called the urban heat island effect and and that is this phenomenon that cities are in general 10 15 even 20 degrees hotter than the countryside the rural areas surrounding them and that's because they're made of concrete and steel and black asphalt. And anybody who's, you know, taking a walk in a city on a hot day knows that, you know, when you're walking on a black asphalt street, it is a lot hotter than it is when you're hanging out in the park. These materials absorb the heat and then kind of radiate it back. So um, the surface temperatures in a, in a, you know, especially in a hardened city like Phoenix, where there's a lot of asphalt and a lot of concrete and a lot of steel and not a lot of green space and trees and things, um, is, you know, predictably 15 degrees or so hotter. So, you know, on that day when I was taking that walk, it was undoubtedly 130 degrees where I was walking, which is, you know, astonishing to think about, but true. So what happened to me was I, I, I just took this walk for 15 blocks. And by the time I got to the 15, end of the 15 blocks, you know, my heart was pounding and I was feeling a little lightheaded. And I realized, oh, my gosh, if I had to walk another 15 blocks, you know, I don't know if I would make it. You know, I wouldn't drop dead on the street, but I, it would be it would be really difficult. And I don't know what that would where that would kind of take me. But what it became clear to me was that, you know, at this moment, I had been writing about climate change for 15 years or Mm -hmm. something. And I'd never thought about like, obviously, heat is part of the conversation is global warming, literally. (laughs) I mean, you know, it's not like some kind of hidden secret, but I had never thought about what it actually meant to me or to people in the here and now. And it never occurred to me about how to think about that, that it's actually a dangerous thing that you can go out on a hot day, take a walk, you know, do take a few wrong turns and, you know, in two hours you're dead. I mean, the, the sort of mortality aspect of it became very clear to me at that moment. And, and furthermore, I had a conversation with a friend of mine that night and I realized that I didn't even know what heat was. In other words, I could explain, like everybody knows the difference between temperature Right. But but if you asked me at that moment, what is heat, I could not have explained it to you. And so I thought this is an interesting idea. And um, <laughs> so that that was the birth of the book. Literally, it was like my own sort of mini heat stroke uh, on the streets of Phoenix four years ago. Wow. And so that's four years ago. That sets you on the path, as you say, 
uh, a, a, a little swifter. It might have come out sooner, but here it comes out. And what was probably a remarkable day in Phoenix four years ago is now a summer day in Phoenix. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, Phoenix this summer has had, you know, extreme heat waves as have as have we here in, in Austin. And yeah. I think we're on our 45th day here now above 100 degrees. Um, and, and what would that normally be in Austin? 10 or 12? Uh, yeah, I mean, they, I, I don't know exactly. Um, but yeah, they would not be it would not the duration would not be this long. Obviously, as everyone always points out to me, it's always hot in Texas in the summertime. Yeah. Um, but you know, we're breaking hundreds of heat records here yeah. in Texas right now, um, both for, um, you know, temperature, extreme temperature and for duration of temperature. So does duration uh, when you're saying duration, do you mean how hot it stays at night or how many days in a row it stays that hot or both? Well, both. Yeah, both. I mean, how hot it stays at night is really important also because it's nighttime temperatures um, are really important for humans and other living creatures to, you know, to deal with heat. Uh, heat kind of accumulates in our body and we it, 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 the, the stress um, accumulates in our body and we need night cool night times to basically give us and other living creatures time to recover from the heat so 115 degree days with 70 degree nights is very different than 115 degree days with 100 degree nights um, you know and there are also differences in whether it's dry heat or wet heat and all that kind of thing that we can go into yeah no no my next question is going to be but first i wanted to say and and this this thing that has changed because that seems to me in my reading something which has changed which is that many places um had the relief of cooler evenings um and you know when we look at all the different things that change, that seems to be one of the things that has changed. And it affects, as you say, living things. And that includes, I'm assuming, our vegetation, which will have enormous ripple effects, yes? Oh, completely. I mean, you know, every living thing, like including humans, we all have what I talk about in my book as a, a kind of Goldilocks zone, which is a kind of range of temperatures that we've evolved to deal with. And we're very good at dealing with that range of temperatures. But as the climate heats up and we move into these higher ranges of temperatures, our bodies or the living organisms, plants and trees and the other living things, uh, just like us, have a harder time dealing with it. And so, you know, you see it in everything from uh, crop production, you know, in, in Iowa right now, in, in, in Texas, corn is at the kind of high, at the, the threshold that it can deal with. Um, you know, it's all, they're already starting to have um, crop failures, corn failures in Iowa. They certainly had, a, had massive corn failures in, in Texas because it's just too hot too long and the plants just can't take it. Um, you know, similarly with, you know, street trees, vegetation, you know, one of the ways that cities are trying to, you know, deal with heat is to plant more trees. And that's a really good idea Who's mm -hmm. not in favor of planting trees. Right. That, I, mean, I know in L.A. we have a cool schools program. Schools have right. often been a, a building, 
uh, maybe a small field and a lot of asphalt. And so cool schools is build trees around those schools. The kids need it. But. Yeah, it's, and it's great to have lots of trees around schools. But the problem is the trees that you plant today, uh, because of how rapidly this warming is happening, is not necessarily, and in fact, most cases, not the trees that will be thriving there in 20 years. So, you know. When uh, those trees are tall enough to make a difference. Exactly, exactly. So a, a lot of, you know, climate savvy urban planners and arborists and others who, who you know, are thinking about this, they actually do projections. They look at what the, you know, climate proje projections for a certain area may be. They consider changes in precipitation pattern, changes in, in uh, extreme temperatures, and they plant kind of trees that are sort of forward looking that mm -hmm. might not be ideal for right now but the way things are going are more likely to be ideal in 20 years when as you said they're big enough to have actually have the shade and they need to be able to sustain themselves in these um, tougher environments and the point that you just made which is that because things are changing and changing so rapidly we have to make predictive assessments and so on. And I, I want to talk about it a little later, but it all brings us to that question of we're in unprecedented territory. So whatever were their tried and true predictive, uh, you know, uh, mechanisms and predictive research five years ago, they're much more, they're much less certain about those predictions today, aren't they? Well, it depends on what you mean by they. I mean, I, I mean, know, climate scientists even. Well, I think that I think, you know, the the climate climate models, the best climate models are have been really good at kind of predicting where we are and where we are now is kind of with certainly within the range of of what these best climate models have predicted, given the amount of fossil fuels that we burn, right? So they're all dependent upon basically how much CO2 we emit into the atmosphere. And so the question is, how much does the temperature rise given X you know, billion tons of CO2 emitted? And so the less CO2 we emit, the, the lower the kind of temperature projections are, to be very simple about it. But, but um, so we're within the range of, of what these models show. But, but these models are you know, average models for global temperature. And the, the, the difficulty is is that as these as our planet gets warmer, is it's changing some of the atmospheric dynamics. It's changing where the jet stream goes and how the jet stream wiggles or doesn't wiggle. It's changing the temperature gradient between the poles and the equator. And what that means is we're getting not just sort of warmer weather, but more unpredictable right. weather. And so and, and it's unpredictable in the sort of near term. It's not unpredictable so much in like, what's the climate going to be like in 50 years? It's more, it's like, it's more like who would have predicted a tropical storm in LA last week? You right. Know? Um, who would have predicted 121 degrees in British Columbia during the heat wave in 2021 uh, in, in the Pacific Northwest? So, you know, weather is, the near term weather is sort of very chaotic. Mm -hmm. The longer term climate predictions are pretty straightforward. Okay, I was thinking that in terms of um, feedback loops and that sort of thing, which yeah. I think is what you were sort of referring to, whether it's the ocean currents or all the sorts of things, that 
that you you build your model, but then the feedback loops have a bit of a life of their own. Totally. And, you know, I mean, a, a good example of that is, you know, in the book, I have a chapter about Antarctica. Um, right. And people often say to me, well, you wrote a book about heat. Why did you go to Antarctica? It's the coldest place on Earth. <laughs> and, and I went to Antarctica, um, first of all, because I had the opportunity to go to Antarctica. And anybody who has the opportunity to go to Antarctica should go just as a matter of like life policy, because uh, it's such an astonishing place. But um, second of all, because I wanted to look at how even small changes in heat um, have big implications. And this is an example of the feedback loop you're talking about. So, you know, the Southern Ocean has warmed by just about one degree Fahrenheit. And, but that, that one degree warming is allowing this slightly warmer water to get underneath the big ice sheets in, in West Antarctica and destabilizing them from below. And so you have small changes that have huge consequences. And, you know, these consequences of the collapse or potential collapse of the West Antarctic ice sheet are not in climate models. You know, that they are. are that, that's a big sentence you just said. Yeah. Well, <laughs> that this true. phenomenon I mean, which is happening is not in the models. It's they're not because, you know, some models have footnotes um, and error bars and things like that. But the problem is, you know, ice dynamics are very, very, very complex. And, um, you know, it's very difficult to know what the physics are of this. And it's there's so much research that has to be done. And it's a great example of how we can understand, you know, the long term temperature trends and things like that. But but the sort of more near term impacts of those temperatures are much more difficult to you know really model. Another example is disease patterns. You know, as we as mm. it gets war as it gets warmer, we're seeing mosquitoes moving into new places, and those mosquitoes are carrying things like dengue and Zika right. and malaria. Even here in the United States, we've had yep. the first reemergence of Amer of malaria in decades. And, you know, no climate model can accurately predict, you know, the path of a mosquito mm. fly. Sure. Right? And, and so there's a lot of unpredictability, you know, within the, the, the larger certainty that we have. Right. No, I, I like that, that image, that, that the big picture, the long term, we can see. There's a sign out right. there that says you have, you know, do not pass go. But what what the phenomena, the daily, weekly, monthly, yearly phenomena that we will ha that we are creating and we have to exist in is is uh, unpredictable. Let me tell people this is free forum, a world that just might work. I'm Terrence McNally and I'm speaking today with Jeff Goodell. How do you pronounce your last name? Goodell. You had Goodell. Right Goodell. Yeah, I've used yeah. it. Speaking today with Jeff Goodell, who's been focusing for over two decades on energy, environment and climate. We're talking about his latest timely book, The Heat Will Kill You First, Life and Death on a Scorched Planet. And you can learn more at Jeff Goodell Writer, all one word, J-E-F-F-G-O-O-D-E-L-L, Writer, JeffGoodellWriter.com. So let's go back to something you raised in the middle of one of your answers, which is that you realized you didn't know what heat is. You knew what a hot temperature might be, but you didn't know what heat was. What is heat? Well, the easiest way to understand what heat is, is vibration. Um, you know, when, when you 
put your hand on a hot coffee cup in the morning when you're, when you're you know, or, or tea when you're having your, your morning coffee or tea and you feel that mug hotter, what's happening is that the molecules that make up that water and then are, are vibrating or moving faster than the, the um, molecules in the cup. And so they kind of agitate the molecules in the cup and the molecules in the cup start moving faster. And then when you put your hand on it, the molecules in the that are more moving more quickly in the, in the mug are then trans is that movement is transferred to your fingertips. Our bodies are wired to register that faster vibration as heat. It's the sensation of heat. And so when you think about a warming world, one way to think about, uh, you know, what is happening on our planet is that it is moving faster. It is vibrating faster. It, it is accelerating the metabolism of our world. Um, and that's a kind of profound way, if you think about it for a little bit of time, to think about, you know, kind of what's happening and, and uh, what this warming really means. Mm-hmm. That's, thank you. I, you know, until your book, I didn't know that either. So I wanted people to get a sense of that. Something that I've thought about is urgency and agency. Okay. If we stop burning carbon now, surface temperatures stabilize almost immediately. That's, I think, is extremely important. It means our actions do have agency. It means there is an immediate and direct response to our reductions in carbon emissions. But the big point of your book is that we stabilize them in this precarious situation we find ourselves. Can you talk about, as I say, we, we'll, we'll get into more things afterwards, but, but I want to take on now at about our halfway point, the big point of that this is different. Right. And I, I mean, you said it very clearly. I mean, you know, the, the basic facts here are that, you know, as long as we keep putting CO2 into the atmosphere, it's going to get warmer. As soon as we hit net zero carbon emissions, and this is globally, not, not the United States, not China, not India, globally, that will stop the rise of temperatures but it will not reverse the rise of temperatures. It's very different than, you know, when I grew up in California, I used to see, you know, smog and, you know, I couldn't see the mountains across the bay and mm -hmm. all that. And then we put in industrial scrubbers and catalytic converters and the air got cleaned up and we went back to kind of how it used to be. We are not going back. There is no scenario in which we go back to the climate that you and I and virtually everyone listening to this, if they're over you know, the age of 10, um, grew up in. And so um, we have to, the biggest fundamental fact here is that we're living in a different climate and we're, and we're living in a more extreme climate, in a hotter climate. We're not going back. There's no return to normal. Climate change is not like a broken leg. We just put ourselves in a cast for six weeks, and then we get back to playing baseball and doing all the things that we want. That we used yeah, to no, I, I was even thinking, you know, when we think of the beginnings of the environmental movement and the Kyoga River outside Cleveland going on fire and Pittsburgh, you know, looking like uh, Beijing. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. Uh, that there was... 
it took us too long, as Dana Meadows said, you know, <laughs> there, there's, there's lobbies and so on that slow things down, but we took the actions, we cleaned it up, and we saw the effects. This right. is different. I'm curious, um, what about the, uh, the chlorofluorocarbons and the hole in the ozone? Because that that's often pointed out as one of the, you know, signature, I think, uh, uh, actions that humanity as a global entity took uh, that seemed to be successful. That also was more successful than we can expect this to be, correct? Yeah, because um, first of all, that was um, at a time when most, when when the sort of basic science, you know, when, when the faith in trust in science and evidence was not questioned by you know a, a third of Americans, and was not a political issue. Exactly. So there was that, and then. You know, it, you didn't have a multi-trillion-dollar industry, you know, working hard with disinformation and and greenwashing to tell you that this problem isn't really so bad after all, and you know we just need to take our time. We can't be disruptive about how we make any changes. So there are important parallels, and it's certainly a great example of what we can do if we kind of put our mind to it and really take it seriously and take action seriously but the politics are are very different and the scale of the problem is is very different and the scale of the obstacle is very different right. as you say exactly. the, the 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 freon manufacturers or the refrigeration and ac manufacturers are not on the same scale as the fossil fuel industry um but the, I had another question in there, which is that once we cleaned up and we removed the freon and we, we switched to other chemicals and so on, did the ozone hole actually shrink? I mean, was it more similar to uh, smog than it is to CO2 emissions? It yes. was, wasn't it? Absolutely. Yeah. It absolutely closed up, you know. And, you know, one thing just to, to complete the circle on the conversation about, you know, going back to the old climate stuff, I mean... There is um, technology, you know, these, this uh, called carbon removal, right? Mm -hmm. Where you, um, uh, one of the guys in my book, in the final chapter of the book, where I go to um, the Arctic and we almost get eaten by a polar bear, he was one of the <laughs> pioneers of, of this um, carbon removal technology. And a lot of oil companies are, are investing big in it right now. Occidental Petroleum uh, just invested like a, over a billion dollars, you know, um, talk, the, the CEO talks about being the Tesla of, of carbon removal. And there's this notion that we're going to build these machines that are going to vacuum, essentially vacuum the CO2 out of the atmosphere. And I personally don't have any doubt that, you know, in the long run, we will develop machines that can kind of stabilize and draw down CO2. But for the near term, meaning like the next like 50 years, 75 years, this is going to remain really expensive, really um, kind of um, uh, tangential to the central goal because it, 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 it won't scale anywhere near fast enough. And my biggest concern, the biggest concern of a lot of um, people who are thinking about this is that it becomes just a another kind of greenwashing tool to allow oil and gas companies to continue um, you know uh, digging up and and selling 
oil and gas with the notion that, oh, we'll just clean it up with these carbon removal machines and it'll be essentially net zero uh, right. carbon. And, you know, that's just another form of greenwashing. Absolutely. One of the other things I hear um, is that if we that that the soil, if uh, if we use regenerative agriculture rather than monocultures and rather than a lot of what we do, that the plants, our own plants, will draw down carbon, and that that's a way that that nature itself may help clean the atmosphere of CO two emissions. How real is that? Oh, it's very real. I mean, you know, there's no question that regenerative agriculture is really important and that, you know, plants draw down and store CO2 in the soil. The question is, the issue is, again, the scale Scale. and speed of it. You know, I mean, in the long term, talking centuries, you know, yes. But, you know, we're talking about, you know, um, urgent uh, you know, the urgency of the, of the next few decades, of the next four or five decades. And on those kinds of timescales, you know, that's not going to be anything like a solution. The amount of CO2 that can actually be drawn down in the near term is totally dwarfed by the amount we put up there. I mean, I mean, it's just really, the logic is like really simple. We need to stop putting it up into the atmosphere. And then we can start to take seriously all of these other things of how to draw it down and you know rewilding is in regenerative agriculture is really great really important for all kinds of biodiversity reasons carbon reasons a a big fan but it gets problematic when anyone starts to think that this is a any kind of replacement or solution for continuing to burn fossil fuels we have to get off of fossil fuels right 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 in other words the, the 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 Whatever geoengineering and, and all of that stuff and, and, and drawing it down uh, technologically, yes, pursue it. Uh, regenerate, yes, pursue it. But uh, if, if that uh, leads you to think you can burn one more gallon of gas uh, and it won't have an effect, you're, you're mistaken. Um, right. In Michael Mann's book, I mentioned The New Climate War, he points out that given the extreme heat, given the wildfires, given the floods, um, denial is now pretty much impossible. And so the fossil fuel industry uh, has uh, come up with new tactics, um, focusing on individual behavior, getting us to, you know, uh, is my hybrid better than your electric or vice versa, right? Those sorts of things. Um, Just your thoughts sort of about the fossil fuel industry's tactics at this point or the um, the actual v- value of individual actions? Yeah, it's a good question. First, let me point out that, you know, we're not beyond the age of denial. We saw that, um, you know, two oh, in, ago. Oh, in, in, the, in the Republican debate. The Republican debate, debate right? I mean, um, you know, virtually, except for I think Nikki Haley was the only only um, candidate up on that forum that uh, even acknowledged that climate change was is, is real. I mean, we're still deep, deep in the in the um, age of denial where we have basically an entire party in, in the United States that you know refuses to acknowledge the reality of this. And so, 
uh, I think broadly there's a there's a shift um, that the American people and globally even more so are really accepting the sort of reality of the science and the urgency to do something about it. And I think there is consensus and it is changing. But I just wanted to say that, you know, yeah, no, no, you make a very good point. And, but one thing that's well in America, you know, I, I think a, a trick that my own brain played on me is that I don't believe even those people on that stage believe what they're saying. Yeah, I, I, I don't think they do either. I think it's all, it's just all like playing to the MAGA crowd. And and the MAGA crowd has been run. manipulated by the fossil fuel industry. And so it's just, pl it's playing to your funders and the misbeliefs that your funders are disseminating. Totally. Yeah. Completely. And, and to go back to the point about individual actions, that's yes. a really good, important question because um, you know, it's obviously true that individual actions matter, but they matter in a big way. Um, you know, I just just last week, um, we installed a heat pump in our house here in Texas and got off of natural gas um, for heating and cooling. And it works fabulously. And I'm very happy and proud of that. And it's really important. Um, you know, all these kinds of things of changing how we live are important. But um, we're not going to solve it by, you know, everybody putting in a heat pump. You know, we need dramatic government federal action on a bigger scale than what we have now. We cannot solve this individually. And companies like BP and other the big oil and gas companies have worked, understand this very well and have worked very hard to kind of um, promote the idea that, you know, Climate change is a problem that you can solve by, you know, uh, recycling plastic straws and walking to work kind of thing, you know, and it's not and it's not going to. It's going to take, you know, the elimination of these massive subsidies that go to the fossil fuel industry, both in the United States and, and around the world. It's going to. Yeah. And let me just say to people, by the way, even if you uh, don't rush out and, and buy this book, Google fossil subsidies to the fossil fuel industry you you yeah. probably assume that we've made some headway against that that of course we must have and yet i i don't have the article or the headline in front of me but a study just came out within the last week of the trillion or so uh that still goes to subsidize the fossil fuel industry yeah you know and it's ironic because you know when i first started writing about climate change you know, 20 years ago, whenever you would have a conversation like this or any kind of conversation about it, the argument was always, well, yeah, we would love to switch to wind and solar and renewable power, but it's too expensive. There's, you know, we don't believe in subsidies and we have to spend, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars or billions of dollars subsidizing this stuff. And you know, we're not willing to do that. And, you know, fossil fuels are cheap. They're a way to get power to people. We don't have to, know, we don't have to meddle with the infrastructure. It's already there. Right. It was all this sort of the economic argument was all about, you know, fossil fuels are the cheapest way to generate power. And power is really important for progress and democracy and economic development. Well, now it's been completely flipped around. Now, everywhere in the world, 
the cheapest way to generate power is by renewables by far it's not even close and now all the subsidies are going to the fossil fuel industry to prop them up and keep them alive in this you know radically changed marketplace so and, and all these people who used to be like oh free market we have to do the right cheap, you know fossil fuels are cheap it's that you know we believe in the market the power of the market it's cheap we're not going to subsidize this crazy wind and solar stuff now it's like no 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 you know we need to solar we need to subsidize the gas and, and oil because if we don't we're going to move too fast and there's going to be blackouts or or whatever and, and so point out the experience of texas in one of its most recent uh, heat crises well, Texas is a great example, right? I live in Austin and it's the belly of the beast for the fossil fuel industry. And, you know, there's a lot of promotion of fossil fuels here. Um, but the fact is, it's also, um, you know, the leader in the country in renewables. It's got more wind and solar than any other state in, in the country. I think second in wind, but first in solar. And, um, you know, for a long time, there had been this argument that you can't go to renewables because they're intermittent, they're unreliable, you know, we'll have blackouts, this and that, the grid can't take it. Well, in fact, Texas this summer has proven the opposite. Right. You against know, their against their better desires. Totally. And so, for example, a week ago when we had a really extreme day and we were in fact, we have another one today where there's a, a grid warning. But um What's happening is that we're getting like 30 to 35 percent of the electricity right now here in Texas from solar and solar is performing incredibly well during this hot, hot summer when grid usage is really high. And the problems they're having are with thermal plants going offline because it's too hot and the metal swells and fatigues and causes problems. And and the, the, it's the thermal plants that are causing the gas, net, mostly natural gas plants and some coal that are causing the problems on the grid, not the renewables. So, again, it's just the opposite of, of the sort of propaganda that was pushed out for decades. OK, um, let's talk about, I, I think, some positive things besides what we just did. Um, what's where there's a lot of. Uh, reference uh, this week, the week we're recording, um, to the one-year anniversary of the Inflation Reduction Act, which uh, the, 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 I guess the title was changed to make it more palatable to Joe Manchin. Um, but how, that's our largest uh, government action ever, uh, largest allotment of funding and, and, and so on. What does it look like a year out? Oh, it looks like a tremendous success. I mean, you know, uh, it's um, astonishing um, how successful it has been. Um, and it, the, the, the irony of, of its success is that it's been most successful and helped create the most jobs and the most kind of development of clean energy and help with adaptation and things in red states. They The red states have benefited the most from the Inflation Reduction Act, uh, although they won't give the Democrats or President Biden actual credit for that. But when you look at the actual statistics of, of job growth in the energy sectors and things, it's all a lot of it is in the red states. And, you know, Goldman Sachs just re, uh, issued a report three weeks ago um, that they estimate that the over the next decade, the Inflation Re Reduction Act will uh, leverage 
over $3 trillion in investment of, uh, into, into clean energy. And, you know, the, the energy, so, so this is happening and happening fast. You know, this, this, this transformation, if it were actually left to the market, um, would happen, you know, it's like the big good news story out of these last couple of decades is this economic reversal that we've been talking about where fossil fuels are the problem, are the expensive ones and clean energy is the cheap ones. And the Inflation Reduction Act is leveraging that. And it's just, I think, a, a really terrific piece of legislation that is going to be looked back on as a kind of historic, um, you know, uh, piece of legislation. and. You know, very canny of the of the Biden administration. Uh, by the way, I've been critical of them for things. I'm not like a, a, a groupie. Right. Um, but, you know, they were very clever in how they positioned this, how they got it through. They didn't call it a climate bill. They didn't even call it, as you know, a, an energy bill. Um, and yet they got through a lot of really, really smart policy. And it's having a big impact. Wow. That's 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 I mean, it's kind of what I but it's it's really good to just hear that you know yeah. hear that go out yeah. on these uh, uh, in this conversation um what advice would you give them besides uh get the word out damn it give who when i give when you say uh, the give biden administration oh well you know yeah get the word out i mean I think stressing the um, economic growth uh, that this that this legislation has has fostered is really important. Um, highlighting the fact that it is not partisan; that it, as I said, that in fact the red states uh, yes, have yes. benefited more than the blue states by any measure. Uh, here in Texas, Governor Abbott just the other day, who is you know a diehard um, Republican was uh, talk, take, trying to take credit for all of the uh, energy, the renewable energy job growth um, here in Texas. And, you know, not doesn't want to give any credit to the Biden administration for any of it. But that's fine. Let, yeah. let him let him take the credit. And I think that, you know, on the energy side, I think that, you know, there's a lot of good news. There's a lot of, you know, look at the growth of electric cars. Look how fast they're being you know, adapted and adopted. And, um, you know, it's astonishing, you know, 10 years ago, um, nobody imagined that this would happen as quickly as it's happened. The problem is, 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 is that it's not happening fast enough, mm -hmm. given the physics of our, our world and, you know, and mitigating CO2 and changing our energy system is only a part of the story. The other part of the story is adapting to these changes that we've talked about or that are in the pipeline that are coming and are not going away. And so how do you build cities for these new climate extremes that we're going to be living in? And how do you think about food production? And how do you think about diseases? And how do you think about things like sea level rise and all that kind of stuff that are, that are a done deal in, in this world we're living in now? That's right. I, I, I just had this image of being in a car and we are focused on stopping going in the wrong direction. Um, right. But but since we've been going in the wrong direction, at some point we have to put our attention on where is it we are going and how do we get going <laughs> in that direction? Right. Right. Yeah. Let me let me tell you. You've got about two or three minutes left. 
what do you want people to hear that I haven't, uh, you know, pushed you toward? Well, I mean, I, I think that the, the, the big important um, thing for me, I mean, we've talked about a lot of the impacts. We've talked about the risks. Um, you know, people talk about solutions and solutions are really important. But I think that, you know, to, to think about solutions, you have to understand the scope and scale of the problem first. And until you understand the scope and scale of the problem, it doesn't really make sense to think too hard about solutions because you're not solving for the right things. It's like solving for the wrong math problem. So in my book, I'm really trying to give a sense of the scope and scale of what we face right now, not not 50 years in the future, like right now. But I also think that it's really important to understand that because so much is up for grabs right now, because we're having to rethink our energy system, because we're having to rethink where our food comes from, mm -hmm. because cities are too hot and, and or being flooded or whatever, we're having to rethink how we build our cities. There's a tremendous opportunity for change, a tremendous opportunity if we get politically involved, if we get smart about this, if we really understand the risks and what we're dealing with to build a better world. And for me, having you know covered this for 20 years, it's really inspiring. You know, people always say, "Why aren't you an alcoholic living in your basement, scrawling on the wall with crayons about you know?" Right, right. Why hasn't this driven you underground? <laughs> yes. Right, and it's because I really do believe that you know we can use if we're smart, we can use this moment for change. And you know, there's nothing perfect about our the way our world is built right now. We can do a much better job. And I continue to be inspired by that and by people I meet and talk with every day who also believe that. Right. No, it's interesting. It was a similar uh, notion that I had during the pandemic. Um, you know, there were certain things that uh, the pan you know, we, we, we were hoping we could get back to a normal. But the hope I had was that we could get back to a better than normal. Um, when, when, as any crisis, crisis gives us that opportunity, and it, it there, there are always a, a, a crisis is a fork in the road. This crisis is probably the biggest fork in the road ever. Um, let me tell you, the book is "The Heat Will Kill You First: Life and Death on a Scorched Planet." The website is jeffgoodellwriter.com. J E F F G O O D E. L.L. Writer, Jeff Goodell, writer, all one word, dot com. For this conversation and many other interviews, articles, to join me in pursuit of a world that just might work, go to terrencemcnally.net or a world that just might work, dot com. They're the same website. If you want to receive my weekly email announcement telling you who's going to be on, what we're going to talk about, and links to probably 10 or 15 articles to flesh out that conversation, um, you can email me at temcnally, T-E-M-C-N-A-L-L-Y, at mac.com or you can sign up uh, at the at the website and you can sign up for the podcast at most of the uh, major podcast sites where you'll find it and you can find years of podcasts there the archives include michael lewis naomi klein bill mckibben van jones connie rice greg boyle george packer you can also follow me on twitter at mcnally terrence thanks to kiana williams in production George Vassilopoulos at Progressive Voices, and most of all to you, my listeners, please share this podcast widely. And finally, thank you, Jeff Goodell. Keep up your good work, and it is really a pleasure 
I know you've been, uh, you know, putting out books for two decades, but this is the first time we've intersected, and it was really a pleasure to become familiar with your work um, and, and to have this conversation. Well, thank you for having me, and it was really a pleasure. You have a great depth of knowledge, uh, and it's great to talk to someone who understands all of this so well. Thank you.